Let us pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we give you great thanks uh, for the witnesses in Scripture, uh, even those who um, may be unwilling to be witnesses and those who might resist being witnesses and even those uh, who are against you. And yet, time and time again, uh, you triumph. And we give you great thanks for that, that even you triumph over those of us who are resistant. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, I had one idea about this class, but over the week it's, it's changed a little bit because some things have come out in the news um, that have caught my attention. And it's not so much the thing itself in the news, but sort of a, I guess if you're in journalism, they call them ghosts in articles. Did y'all ever take a journalism class? And you sort of read it, and the article's about one thing, but you read it again, and you think there's something behind this. There's a story behind the story. And there have been two big ghosts uh, that I've seen this week, and uh, I'm going to share them with you. But let me begin by saying who we're going to talk about today, and that is Malchus. And um, we will ultimately, even though not give as much treatment as we ought to, uh, Simon of Cyrene, or sometimes called Simon of Cyrene. Um, I, when I originally sent the title to Gil, it said Simone. I don't know why I wrote Simone. And that, coupled with the two classes on prostitution, sort of raised his, you know, um, what, are you, what are you doing here? So um, <clears throat> we'll get to Simon of Cyrene, um, or Cyrene, uh, toward the end. Uh, but does anyone know who Malchus is? Nobody knows who Malchus is. There's really no reason for you. He gets scant. He he makes one appearance in the New Testament. Uh, he's only met, his name is only mentioned in one gospel, but the rest of the what happens to him isn't mentioned in that gospel. In the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 18, verse 10. Remember that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was handed over. The disciples are there, kind of asleep at the wheel, and Jesus is praying in the garden, and they hear the arresting party approaching, and Malchus was at the front of the line, and so Malchus got his ear chopped off. That's Malchus, and Jesus bends down, picks up the ear, his uh, right ear, and, um, well, let me just make sure I have the right, 1810. Um, let's see it. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That's right. The servant's name was Malchus. Um, and Jesus picks it up and um, heals Malchus's ear. Now, there's a couple things going on here that, um, that I think are really interesting. One is the fact that John, who is very much into detail, uh, but that his name is mentioned, and... There are going to be some things that I say that might be conjecture about Malchus, but really what I want to talk about is Malchus as a type rather than, but I want to talk about Malchus as the individual too. So if it sounds like conjecture, just chalk it up that I'm speaking about the type and not Malchus. But uh, Malchus was the servant of the high priest Caiaphas, and uh, he was a bond servant. He was an indentured servant. And... Um, some curious things uh, that are not mentioned in the scriptures that, but may or may not be true. One is that um, what we do know this to be true. Uh, as he's going in, Simon Peter pulls, draws a sword and chops off Malchus's ear. Now, Simon Peter was not trying to chop off Malchus's ear. What was he trying to do? Trying to chop off his head. <laughs> Simon Peter was trying to kill Malchus, and uh, and either Simon Peter was still a little bit sleepy. Uh, or uh, maybe, you know, drank from the cup a little too much at Passover, or uh, was just a bad swordsman. But we know that Simon Peter carried around a sword, 
and because he was a member of a party called the Zealots. Remember, they were always, and one of their mottos was, um, like the army, like always ready to go. And at a moment's notice, they needed to be ready. And so he would carry around this small sword, but a sword nonetheless. And um, uh, in attempting to kill Malchus, he uh, either Malchus sort of bobbed, uh, or we don't know. But um, the fact that he cut off the right ear meant that Malchus somehow moved. Uh, because if you think about it, if Simon Peter is drawing with his right, right, his right hand, which he would have been, uh, it's almost impossible to cut off um, the right ear if someone is facing you, unless he kind of, ha ha, you know, uh, but that didn't happen. Um, and so clearly Malchus just kind of went like that and got his ear cut off. Um, it's It's been thought that um, that those who were in bonded servitude uh, had their left ears pierced um, and um, noting that they were a bondservant, um, and that would have indicated that he belonged to Caiaphas, or it was at least in the service of Caiaphas, and that was the ear that would have been chopped off, and that Jesus repaired that ear. And there's an apocryphal story that when Jesus repaired the ear, that the piercing was gone. An apocryphal story, but nice, right? Um, the whole idea of a new identity. Well, then the story just kind of picks up from there, and you know, every you know, he's arrested. Uh, one of the disciples runs from the garden. Do you remember this? An oft missed fact, without any clothes on. Um, don't ask me why, but he, but he take, like, he was in such a hurry that he just said, "Forget it," and and took off running. And um, and everybody else headed for the hills, and there was Jesus, and he was arrested, and everything gains momentum very quickly. And yet, you can imagine Malchus. You know, um, all right, Malchus, let's go. But I mean, the most incredible thing in Malchus's entire life just happened, right? This is not something. Uh, if you go over to the um, the Holy Land, sometimes you can get a tour guide. And if you go, I'm just going to tell you, don't go in a big group because if you go in a really big group, it's very hard to sort of go to the places and spend some time there. And um, but if you go in a big group, what inevitably happens is your tour guide, who uh, is probably an Arabic Christian, um, will say, okay, this is where Jesus walked on the water. Everybody back on the bus. And then he'll say, this is where he multiplied the loaves and fishes. Everybody back on the bus. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, for Malchus, it's, it's, you know, Malchus is saying something significant is just, I don't want to get back on the bus, right? I, I, want to, I want to stay here for a little bit and, and allow this to sink in. And of course, even though it's not mentioned, this would have been true that he was with Jesus all the way up until he was handed over to Pilate. He would have been in the presence of Jesus um, when he was uh, put into the pit and all of that kind of stuff. So when he was with the high priest and then he was handed over to Pilate. So... Um, a pretty significant event that happens in Malchus's life. Now, this is conjecture, but when names are mentioned in the New Testament, it's significant. It's significant. Um, there are plenty of, of things that happen, plenty of miracles that happen in the New Testament. Um, uh, let's just take one from John's Gospel as an example. Uh, the wedding uh, in Cana of Galilee. All right, remember that? Was the family name mentioned? Bride, groom, no. It doesn't necessarily take anything away from the story at all, but but it 
they're not mentioned. And even here, the synoptics didn't feel the need, Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't feel the need to put Malchus's name in, and yet John did. And often when John puts, or when the Bible puts, and says, this is who this is, it's pretty significant because it often means that that person became a Christian. And the gospel writers would mention a name, basically saying, look, if you don't believe me, go talk to Malchus, who is the servant of the high priest. You know, go go talk to, we're going to get to this in a minute, but I'll, I'll show you my hand now. Uh, go talk to Rufus and Alexander, who are Simon of Cyrene's sons, who we know became Christians. So um, we don't know uh, if Malchus necessarily became a Christian, but I think it's safe to say he considered it. <laughs> Right? He thought about it a little bit in light of, um, of what happened to him that night in the garden. And, um, and everything that happened that night and into the next day and that weekend um, was seen by Malchus through the lens of this healing of his ear. I feel like in the world that we live in, um, there... Um, are a lot of Malchuses in the world, uh, and that is uh, people who are kind of along the ride, on, along for the ride in life. Uh, they may, in fact, be good and decent moral people. Uh, they may not even be aware of the fact that they are in opposition uh, to Jesus, because that's the default situation of humanity, right? It's not that we loved him, but that he loved us. That our natural disposition is resistance. And, uh, and I don't even, I mean, that's especially true of how we feel about Jesus, how we feel about God. But I feel like in life in general, our natural disposition is one of resistance and challenge and skepticism. Even for those who we might consider open-minded and want to believe. Uh, and I know this to be true because I have children. And Lily did the same thing. Uh, her first two words, which I'm going to talk to you about in a minute. And I've noticed Mary Cabell, our two-year-old, she's at that point where, you know, one day it sounds like she's being very articulate and great, and the next day you think we're backsliding. You know what's going on. But there are two words that she probably can, I mean, she says more than any other words. Um, she probably knows what they mean in Mandarin. Um, she's, she's got it down. And take a wild guess what those two words are. Mine and no, that's right, those are it. You've heard those words. Um, mine and, and no, and even, even when she wants to say yes, her natural reaction is no. I mean, and then she's, you, know, you can see her, her head start to implode and she's like, ah, yes. Um, but our natural disposition is, even for those good things, is to say no. And of course, with a child, what you do is, uh, do you wanna go play in the bathtub? Which actually my kids really like to do. Um, no, no. Uh, but then you get them in the bathtub, and what's it like? It's like they've died and gone to hell. This is the best thing that's ever happened in their life, you know. Um, although I get more bubbles, daddy. That's what I get. But anyway, and so um, that's how she says it. Uh, but as human beings, we're naturally resistant to anything that would be remotely good to us. I, I, I've not done this to my children, but I almost. I wonder if I called green vegetables candy, what would happen? Just psychologically. I have a feeling they'd eat them. But the moment that you say, this is called cabbage, like, it's just like, 
I don't like it. It sounds like a card game with pegs, and I don't want anything to do with it. So our natural disposition is no and resistance. And here is Malchus, who's just kind of along for a ride. I mean, he has no choice but to be in opposition to Jesus. And he's at the head of the line, and all he knows is he's going out to make an arrest of this rebel rouser. But he knows that Jesus is more than a rebel rouser because he works for Caiaphas, the high priest. And they talk about Jesus all the time. Because remember, right out of the gate, one of Jesus' first acts was to clear the temple of the money changers. He does it twice, but early in John's gospel, he does it. And man, the Pharisees, they loved it. They loved it so much so that, remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, we know that you are of God. Why? Because you came to wreck shop. Right? You came to do all these awesome things because this, the, this is what the Jewish establishment wanted. They wanted somebody that was going to come in, clean up the religion of the day, get people serious, get rid of the Romans. And the moment Jesus said, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm actually here to do a surgeon's-like technique on each of your individual hearts, the white flags didn't go up. The battle flags went up. And they just said, "What? Well, it's explicit what they said. We have to kill him. We have to kill him. And so Malchus has heard about this Jesus, maybe even seen this Jesus, and he's headed out to arrest him. And, uh, and sure enough, true to form, he gets us. Somebody tries to kill Malchus, uh, which is maybe what he was expecting. And uh, But then this Jesus, who was supposed to be such a problem, uh, and I don't know about you, uh, if I were Jesus, I wouldn't tell Peter to put his sword away. I would, you know, charge, you know, and then I'd kind of, you know, slink back into the, you know, the, the fighting and... And, uh, but instead, Jesus says something that's in the heat of the moment when lots of lives could be lost. Somehow Jesus is able to say, stop. And everybody stops. Even, even the, the, the people who have come to arrest him, everybody stops. And he reaches down and he heals Malchus's ear. The very last thing that you would expect. But that's what Jesus does. And so one of the things that we find is that Jesus' compassion um, extends to even those who are there to arrest him. That his healing touch uh, is not uh, goes uh, to even those, and he intervenes in life to even those who, who are against him. And um, that might sound like a radical statement, but that's us. Right? That's, that's us. I mean, even in Simon Peter's courageous, he's been courageous, uh, but typical to Peter, uh, you know, right church, wrong pew, uh, you know, even in his effort to try to defend Jesus, um, that was actually in resistance to what Jesus came to do. That's why he said, uh, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Right? That was actually a move in opposition to Jesus, even though Peter thought that it was well-intentioned, uh, and, and I guess it was well-intentioned, and what he thought of as good. But what I find uh, more often in our culture is we, we have resistance, but even um, the resistance that I, it's not necessarily marked by the Richard Dawkins of the world who say this stuff is terrible or Jesus is for people who just need an emotional crutch. Uh, what I find is that the resistance is much more subtle and it's normally masked Insincerity. 
And right now, I feel like when I talk to people um, about uh, their faith outside of the church, uh, I talked last week that if you ask somebody, you know, what are your spiritual beliefs, they'll talk your ear off forever and ever and ever. And um, and bottom line, what I often hear is, um, whatever works for you is what works for you, right? It's a utilitarian view of religion. It's true because it because it works, right? That's the approach of religion. And there is a striving, um, which is, this is where the Eastern side comes into America. Um, uh, Eastern sort of misses it. There's a striving for sort of like finding these spiritual levels and getting, you know, closer and closer to God by, by doing all these things. And it's as if Jesus or religion in general is this hidden truth out there that has to be in, uncovered, right? Like it's, it's hidden treasure. And so you have to do things like eat, pray, love, right? You have to eat your way through Italy and then pray your way through, um, where should you go, Nepal, Tibet. Nepal, Tibet. I know you all read the book. So, um, or saw the movie. And then she finds love in Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, that, that if you're going to find spiritual fulfillment in life, you have to go far away, right? It's, it's, it's not... Uh, and then Jesus tells these crazy stories. Like there was once a man who was digging around in a field and he found this buried treasure and went and sold everything that he had in order to buy the field. Right? Can you imagine like if, um, like an Indiana Jones movie, like all of a sudden, you know, the opening credit where uh, like in Temple of Doom, uh, where he's running in the balls, the boulders rolling after him. You know that one. It's, it's famous. So he's got, he's got the monkey, the gold monkey. And he, well, let's just say that like, um, ultimately, like, he gets the monkey, and then all of a sudden, he gets back home, and there's a big crate out in front of his house delivered by UPS, and he opens it, and there's the Ark of the Covenant, and then the credits run. Boo, right? Boo, right? Because he's got to go through all the trials and tribulations of being able to find this treasure. And Jesus says, um, there's a guy who's just like you and me, who's just tinkering around, decides to put a garden in an empty lot, and he finds treasure. Dun, 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 dun. We boo. The world boos at that because it's supposed to be hard to find spiritual treasure. And Jesus says, it's right under your nose. It's right under your nose. And it's found in the most, it's least likely of places. The least likely of places. It's found when you're going to arrest me. Uh, it's found while you're tinkering. You don't have to go far off. It's not, I mean, one of the hard, hard things that people have with the gospel is it's so simple. I've told the story of some friends that I have who had their mom over for Thanksgiving. I told it last week, but it's worth repeating. And, um, and the mom said, so let me get this right. This Christian thing that y'all are into <laughs> is no matter what you do or what you've done or what you will do, Jesus will love you and forgive you if you simply confess it to him and trust him. I said, yeah, that's, that's about it. She goes, then I'm not interested. Then I'm not interested. Because for her, it's, it's, right, well, what about penance? What about making up for, for what you've done? Jesus says, I've already done it for you. Right? I mean, the idea that the world has is that um, Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He comes to get arrested. Simon Peter chops off Malchus's ear, and uh, Jesus leans over and picks up Malchus's ear and says, here's a first aid kit. You better put it on ice. I've done my part, now do yours. That's actually how the world approaches Jesus. That they sort of, you know, Jesus will equip them to do whatever it is they feel like they need to do in life. And um, 
one of the stories, uh, let me, let me, this is, this is extreme, but I think it's important. Wayne, tell those kids to be quiet. Mm-hmm, that's right. So um, this is the end of it. Oh, okay, this is pretty fun. So this is from the Independent in the UK, which is a daily paper. It says, uh, Valerina Lukyanova is a real-life Barbie doll. The 23-year-old Ukrainian has undergone extensive cosmetic surgery in her quest to resemble her favorite childhood toy. She has huge almond-shaped eyes, perfect porcelain skin, a voluminous bust that tapers to a 17-inch waist. Even up close, Lukyanova looks like she's made of plastic rather than flesh and blood, which is fine by her. Quote, I always try to perfect myself further both inside and out. That's important, inside. Because I think perfection has no limits, she says. To maintain her tiny frame, she subsists solely on fruit and vegetable juices. Quote, I've been on a liquid diet for a year now. In recent weeks, I have not been hungry at all. Recent weeks, isn't that funny? 50 weeks, I'm starving to death, but the past two weeks have been fun. Um, <laughs> in recent weeks, I've not been hungry at all. I'm hoping, okay, this is, now this is the kicker. So she's, she says, outside appearance isn't enough. It's about inside, which is what the world would say, right? That's good. It's a good thing to say. But listen to this. Um, I've been on a liquid diet for a year now. In recent weeks, I've not been hungry at all. I'm hoping it's the final stage before I can subsist on air and light alone. <coughs> Regarded as a spiritual leader by her millions of online fans, I mean, all, this is a weird twist. This is not where you expect me to go with this. Lukyanova gives lectures on, quote, being sincere with oneself and, quote, finding a life partner. Uh, I need one of those. Her own husband is a construction magnate. She dismisses those who call her a freak. Quote, they are, women, they are women who are unhappy with their lives, she shrugs. They are sitting at home making cabbage soup. I feel sorry for them. Okay. Um, okay, well, we can dissect that. For, I mean, we can look at her, and at one level, we can say, she's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Like, she's just a nut. And yet, she has millions of people who follow her online, um, and um, which means that millions of people think that there's at least some possibility that you can get to a point of physical and spiritual nirvana of getting close to... Like, perfection means being able to subsist on light and air. Now, I would be the opposite. Like, perfection would be for me to be able to eat a ribeye every single night, an entire cheesecake, and look amazing. Right? That's, that's, that, if she can pull that off, I'm signing up, right? But it's really two sides, it's two sides of the same coin, though. And, um, but her, her key thing is it's really, I mean, if, um, if you questioned her and said, even from, this isn't healthy, right? This isn't healthy, and, and you have uh, some real issues. Um, is she would probably counter with, but this is what I believe. This is what I believe. I'm sincere about this. How dare you? How dare you question that? The other ghost story that I read this week was one, uh, and the, again, the issue is not the same, um, but Dick Cheney was giving advice to somebody about a very difficult situation that they were, they were str- uh, issue they were struggling with, and they came out with a position, and a lot of people asked, he did a 180 on something, and they said, well, how, how did you change your mind? And he said, well, honestly, I spoke with Dick Cheney about it. And, um, and he said, Dick Cheney's advice to me was, follow your heart. 
Now, one, that's kind of funny. Can you imagine Dick Cheney saying, follow your heart, right? <laughs> Dick Cheney's like, rip the guy's heart out, right? That's what, you know, that's what Dick Cheney says. Uh, but um, it, it, it jumped out to me, one, because Dick Cheney was saying, follow your heart, but two, that that was what he said was the deciding advice. And we're not talking about, I mean, we're talking about big-time players in the world of politics and world affairs, that that was what changed his mind, was to simply follow his heart. And what the Bible says is that the heart is deceitful above all things, that you can be incredibly sincere about something and be sincerely wrong. Right? That's the whole idea of Jesus' intervention in the life of individuals. Um, it's sort of like you are spiritually blindfolded in life. And Joe preached on St. Paul this morning. Uh, remember, St. Paul thought he was doing the right thing, that God was actually calling him to kidnap Christians and bring them back into Jerusalem for, for trial and often execution. And you can be blindfolded and you're in a car and let's say that spiritually speaking, because the wages of sin is death, that you're heading toward the flames of hell in a car and you're blindfolded. And you try to say to your friend, you're in the driver's seat here and you're driving toward hell. And you say, no, I'm not. I'm going to the beach. I can feel it getting warmer. Feels good. Looking forward to it. It's going to be great. And to blindfolded, so, and no, no amount of wrangling and no amount of, if you say just, even if you say just trust me, look, it, it's not going to, but what happens when God takes the blinders off? You actually see things as they really are. You're, for the first time in your life, able to have any ounce of discernment, spiritually speaking, in your life, so that when you see that's not the beach, um, although I could do some sort of joke about Panama City right now in hell, but uh, you're driving toward it. Your, your involuntary response is, is what? Slam on the brakes and turn around. Right? Go the other direction. But that's not possible until God actually intervenes uh, in your life. And so... In a world that is incredibly sincere and is incredibly heartfelt, um, this is one of the greatest difficulties that I come up against in talking with people and interacting with people, especially family. Um, and normally the default position is, well, Andrew, you know, you have what you believe, and I have what my belie- what I believe, and um, and let's just leave it at, at that. But if you're like me and you're a Christian and you see um, if you have, you know, your your cousin uh, Valeria Lukinova, um, and she's sitting at the table saying, "But I have what I believe, and it it makes me happy," um, you can't help but think, "I don't I don't care how sincere you are. You need help, <laughs> right? You need rescue. You need to be saved from yourself." And um, one of the things about Malchus that I wonder often about whatever happened to him is, I mean, is it possible that God did this amazing thing in his life that affected him tremendously? Um, and at least in his subconscious or in, in the innermost thoughts of his heart that he never shared with anybody, he was sort of a believer, but because of the world that he lived in, he just sort of tamped it down. Um, and just live life uh, as sort of having a kernel of faith, but not really being able to do anything about it. And I was talking to a family member once, uh, and um, who at one time was uh, was a professed Christian, and uh, he married a woman who was very antagonistic toward the faith. 
And uh, they tried out a couple churches, and unfortunately the churches, the time of year that they decided to try out churches was October. And if you know anything about the church, that's stewardship season. And, um, and so it was very funny because I was talking to this woman uh, who I'm related to by marriage, and, uh, and she said, I mean, it's ridiculous. Every church we went to asked for our money, and she goes, you know what? I put $20 in the collection plate at every place I went to, and that preacher, I mean, he worked, I mean, the service was maybe an hour, and $20 an hour, that's pretty good. I just thought, that's not really how it works. Um, believe me, I know. Um, but, uh, but I asked him in light of this relationship, um, you know, how, do you, how, do you, how are you a person of faith in a relationship like that? And he said, Andrew, if I decided that I really wanted to practice my faith, um, it would mean the end of my marriage. Me being a Christian would mean the end of of my marriage. Now we can make arguments that well that's not that's misplaced and you're underestimating God and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, but that was a real fear for him, a real fear for him. And I think that there are a lot of Malchuses in the world who uh, who have experienced uh, the power of Jesus and they put up the resistance of a two-year-old and continue to say mine and no, just no. Uh, and yet in your heart of heart and in their heart of hearts. Uh, you know that they know the deal. You know that they know the deal. And Martin Luther wrote about this at the time of the Reformation when he wrote the Babylonian captivity of the church, which is really um, the church being caught up in, in the culture, the culture actually dictating to the church. And so anytime somebody says, this is the worst the church has ever been, or Christianity is at an all-time, I mean, read your history. I mean, it, it could, I mean we're, we're not in the, we haven't gotten to lions and coliseums yet, so we're, we're doing a little bit better than we, we have in the past. Um, but one of the great struggles of the church has always been uh, a cultural captivity and uh, fighting against that. But rather than arguing over and against the culture, um, like it's, again, it's easy for me to look at this Barbie doll, and I have a picture up here if y'all are interested, um, uh, arguing against like, you know, this is this. The culture is the problem. Uh, what we really find out, because of who we are as human beings, the human beings are the problem. Right? Because even as Christians, there's still this tug of war within all of us. That um, Saint Paul said that he said there's this tug of war between inside all of us, where we know what we want to do, and we know what we ought to do, but we can't find ourselves doing that. And it's really easy to capitulate. And it's really easy. So um, Joe Gibbs asked the question this morning, and I'll just be honest with you. When Joe Gibbs asked the question this morning, if you were at the 9 o'clock, um, when you think upon, correct me if I'm saying this wrong, when you think upon what Jesus has done for you, does it bring about spontaneous joy and worship and service? Is that basically what he, uh, was the question he asked at the end? How many were paying attention? And um, not me, obviously. And I've heard it twice. So, um, and a lot of it because I've been caught up on that question because if I'm honest with myself, not always. Not always. Uh, and and I, I find myself convicted that uh, as crazy as this Ukrainian woman is, that in some small part uh, I, I buy into it and I think that... Um, that, um, that I get in the way when God is trying to do something uh, in my life. And so that it's, it's not just the culture is ruining us, but what I find is that uh, individuals who make up the culture are the issue. 
um, there was a poster in our house growing up. My grandfather was very funny. And it, uh, have you ever seen those um, motivational posters, you know, at doctor's offices where you walk in and there's only like this beautiful photo of like redwoods and underneath of it says strength. And it has like some pithy quote. And my grandfather found, uh, found a bunch of them that were called demotivators. And uh, <laughs> one of them had, had all of these hands in a circle. Uh, and underneath it, it said teamwork. And then it said, none of us is as dumb as all of us. Um, he also had one that said, um, he also had one that he gave to me in college that had this beautiful uh, ridge line overlooking this beautiful valley. And two, you can only see the silhouettes, but you could tell that there was a female runner and about 30 feet behind her was a male runner. And, uh, and it was just this awesome photograph. And then underneath it, it said, perseverance. And then it said, Get over it, dude. She's just not that into you. Um, so. But uh, there, uh, there is a sense in which, um, like G.K. Chesterton was asked to write for the, uh, not the Independent, the Telegraph, um, back in the early 20th century, and they had all these Christian authors come in and write uh, full-page articles or editorials on issues of the day, and Chesterton was given, uh, what's the problem with the world today? And Chesterton wrote back, dear sir, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, and he's right, uh, he's right. And so with that, one, it ought to engender some compassion toward uh, the Malchuses uh, of the world, who, um, who may have had some experience with Jesus, might even understand it, and yet for some reason that faith hasn't grown to any sort of fruition because it's very clear that Jesus had incredible compassion uh, for Malchus and that Jesus died just as much for Malchus as he did for any of us uh, because um, uh, while we were once enemies of God, uh, Jesus has now um, made us uh, sons and daughters of God uh, by adoption. And in the culture that we live in, it's very easy uh, to sort of say, uh, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. And it does feel like that some days. Like what really scares me are, um, I was listening to something the other day about how everything is going robotic. Right? Everything's going robotic and pretty much they were talking about within the next five years, um, there will be no more need for truck drivers. Right? So that's like 200,000 plus, or no, it might have been more than that. Uh, truck drivers, they're just going to lose their jobs like that because they'll now be automated and, and uh, uh, they just uh, won't be able to do it. And then uh, how they found that um, robots are beginning to fill certain emotional needs for human beings. And this person who's a robotics expert who clearly is very in touch with what's going on, they said, you know what, the sad thing is is that these robots that are serving as companions for people who are, you know, the elderly and, and other people, um, they said, you know what, the thing about it is, is that um, these robots are doing what human beings ought to do. The robots are doing what human beings ought to do uh, for one another. And so as we look around and we see this and this, this growing um, gap where on the one hand we live in a global world but we're becoming more and more individualistic um, and everybody sort of has their own way of life, their own M.O., and yet, at the same time, it's clear that the, the world is screaming for answers. Right? How am I, like, uh, John O'Leinball said it, I've said it, we've all said it a thousand times, the two great truths. It, one, um, 
We want to be known as we are, broken, selfish, mine and no, known through and through, and yet also loved. And that those two come together in Christianity. In the world, and most other philosophies, they don't go that way, right? In order to be loved, you have to be like a Barbie doll, right? You have to have a, a juice diet, juice-only diet. Um, David and I are thinking about going on a juice-only diet. Um, hamburger juice, pizza juice. Uh, so uh, you can't be yourself and be loved in the world. And but what is clear is that the fact that this woman has over a million followers on her on her website means that they are crying, and they know that it's not a reality for them to get plastic surgery. And but what they're they're just looking they're looking for a way. They're so desperate, so desperate that they're even going to um, literally this plastic woman, this plastic woman. And so um, I think that what the world, in spite of what it thinks it needs, what it really needs. Uh, is sincerity, yes, but sincerity that is rooted in truth. It's not true because it, it works. Uh, it works because it's true. It's not true because it works. It works because it's true. And, and that's Christianity. And, um, and to have compassion on those people who might go to great lengths uh, uh, to do things. But what I want to say is that there's no there's really no difference in the human heart between this Ukrainian woman and any of our friends or family uh, who try to create a false ladder to heaven as well. Uh, the blinders are still on. Uh, they're still on their way to a road that ultimately will lead to destruction and not fulfillment in life. Right? At the end of the day, um, I, I, she's not going to be able to subsist on light and air. It's not going to happen for her. And yet uh, there is one who says to her, Valeria, you're broken, you're a total mess, uh, you've had more than just your ear worked on, you've had a lot of things moved around, uh, and yet uh, I know you through and through, and uh, I know what you look, at on the, look like on the outside, I know what you look like on the inside, uh, and I love you, and I love you as you are, and, I, and I'm going to begin a great work in your life. And so... Um, very briefly, moving on to Simon. We see Simon of Cyrene, who was asked to take up the cross with Jesus. And they he helps carry the cross, uh, and he has his little boys there. We find that in Mark. Um, his little boys there who are watching this whole scene, thinking this might be it for Dad. And clearly, Simon was not a volunteer. <laughs> it was like, oh, me. Um, and and he, um, he got wrapped up and, and really got caught up in the deluge of the moment. And uh, and yet, it not just, instead of just sort of saying, well, that one's off the bucket list, um, you know, uh, it not only changed him, it changed his sons. Because we find them later on in Romans, um, where they've actually, um, they're asked to be greeted and things like that. And, and so they became missionaries. Uh, and so for the Malchuses in the world, uh, what we find is that uh, God doesn't give up on them. It's not like a one-time deal. Like God says, I'm going to heal your ear, and that's it. I'm going to heal your ear, and then you just think about that. But God actually is constantly pursuing you. God's not a one-time interventionist and leaves you to your own devices. But God will he'll tackle you if, you have, if he has to. 
He will tackle you if he has to. Uh, and thank God for that, because if we were left uh, to our own selves, uh, we would simply say, no, mine. Questions, comments, concerns? I mean, what would I do if I didn't get married and have kids? I'd be so boring. I'd have no material. I'd have no material. Well, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Malchuses and the Simons and the Rufuses and the Alexanders of the world that you're never finished with us. And Lord, we do pl- pray for our friends and family, uh, whether they outwardly seem normal or whether they are just nuts like Valeria. But Lord, your mercy extends to all. And so we pray that you would somehow break through those exteriors and meet them where they are. In Jesus' name, amen.